Hey, welcome back to another episode of Keeping Cozy. I know it's been a while since I posted, but that's because I was at Business Insider, where I recently finished a fellowship where I was covering cryptocurrencies. If you're at all interested in the work I did while I was there, I'm posting a link to that in the description box below. Today I'm speaking with David Rubenstein. David Rubenstein is one of the most well-known Americans for the work he did in creating the Carlyle Group, a leading private equity firm based out of Washington, DC. Outside of that, he's also known for the work that he does in philanthropy, where he helped restore the Washington Monument and has donated millions of dollars of artwork to institutions and museums around the world. For me, he's best known for the work that he does as an interviewer. He has a show on Bloomberg where he interviews people who he considers his peers, people like Jeff Bezos, and Ari Emanuel, and interestingly, Sam Bankman-Fried, who we're gonna talk about today. So I hope you enjoy this conversation, and I apologize in advance for the quality of my microphone. Things are gonna get better, just with time. I hope you enjoy this episode, and take care. You often self-deprecatingly joke about struggling early on in school and uh, you know, with your early professional life, but um, you know, did those early rejections and maybe struggles fuel future success? Well, um, like any young person, you always find, you know, some rejections. You're not good enough for an athletic team. You're not good enough for a school program. You're not good enough for a musical competition. So there's always rejection. That's part of life. Um, and, you know, many times uh, during my early professional career, there were rejections and things. So when I left the White House, uh, nobody really wanted to hire me because, you know, I had worked in the Carter White House and that was considered uh, a terrible thing to have done. So, uh, you know, rejection strengthens you and the people that, that get rejected in life, typically the ones that are succeed are ones that have overcome that rejection, accept it and try to work harder to get back to where they want to be. Yeah. And then, um, kind of on Forrest Gump lucky moments, you've mentioned, you know, when you went to UChicago law, right. there was something where, you know, you sent a deposit to the wrong group of people and they oh, were right. going to withdraw your scholarship, right. things like that. Well, there, that was I'm not rejection. That was probably stupidity on my part. That was um, where I sent in $50 to reserve my place in the uh, law school. But I, I was supposed to send $50 and reserve my place in law school, but also $50 to reserve my law school dorm room. Since I didn't have an extra $50 hanging around, I said, I'll send in $50 to the law school dorm people. They'll tell the law school people I'm coming to accept my scholarship there. But they obviously didn't do that. So I showed up the first day and the uh, law school people didn't have me coming because they didn't. I didn't send them the fifty dollars, so they said they gave my scholarship to somebody else. So that was uh, uh, a moment of probably stupidity on my part. But they eventually gave me the scholarship, and I've now given them about I don't know sixty million dollars in scholarship money to make up for, uh, in terms of not to make up for it, but to thank them for what they did for me. Well, so and then kind of in the vein of like you know going back to like losses and dealing with them, how do you remain optimistic when you've taken a hit or a loss or you know you were not able to get a job post Carter administration? Well, um, you have to remain somewhat optimistic. If you get too much down in the dumps, you just will conclude you're not going to do anything and you'll shrub up, shrub up on a ball and 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 not achieve anything. So I think whenever you have rejection, you should recognize that rejection is part of life, and the stronger people, the successful ones, get back on their feet. So, you know, Mark uh, Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, they've all had rejection in their careers and life, and they got back on their feet and they built good companies. Well, and then, you know, kind of on, on the vein of that, you mentioned that, you know, when you started Carlisle, I believe that there was some trouble with you getting, you know, starting out in New York City. So you had to start in Washington, D.C., and then you marketed that as one of the advantages of, yes. of working with Carlisle. Well, we never actually considered going to New York. We wouldn't have been credible there. So I was living in Washington. And the people I was recruiting were in Washington. And I thought if we moved to New York, we would have no credibility at all. But 
by being in Washington, uh, we might have credibility saying we understood companies heavily affected by the federal government. So, so that's what worked. There's an old saying by a former Senator, Edward Dirksen, when you're getting kicked out of town, get out in front and pretend you're leading a parade, which means take advantage of the situation you find yourself in. We found ourselves in Washington with no credibility in New York, so we stayed here. Well, kind of um, transitioning to you know your early career or your early life, in a talk with the University of Maryland, you mentioned that when you attended Duke University, there was a quota on how many Jewish students were allowed to attend. Was that something that impacted you while you were studying there, just feeling like there is a quote on how many Jews would be allowed to, to go to well, school? I, I, I would say uh, there were many schools that had Jewish quotas in the 20th century. Uh, many of the Ivy League schools did for a while. I think many of them went away. Uh, Duke had an informal Jewish quota, which I didn't know about until after I left Duke. Uh, but the president of Duke, who came in in my senior year, Terry Sanford, heard about the Jewish quota and he eliminated it didn't affect me. So, um, you know, the Jewish quota was probably about 5%. So, uh, you know, and and I noticed that, you know, in the way that the school worked, and in many schools did, if you were Jewish, your roommate was Jewish. In other words, they didn't think that yeah. you could have a non-Jewish roommate, or they didn't think you'd be compatible with. But, and, and this university symbol uh, had a big, gigantic crucifix in it. Um, and so uh, I became the first Jewish person to become chairman of the board of of Duke and and the situation has changed a lot. Well, kind of on that note, I think this is something like these histories with universities is at the center of controversy for like a lot of you know people um, in the world today, especially students at those schools. So you know, how do people who are upset with maybe the histories of their institutions um, take the good from it without getting bogged down by like the past? Well, every school has had its problems. I'm on the Harvard Corporation Board, and Harvard issued a report earlier this year. Uh, about the, the impact of slavery on, on Harvard. And, and Harvard was around for 150 years before slavery was eliminated. And so Harvard is now dealing with the impact of having been around and, and tolerated slavery. So every school has its history that doesn't look so wonderful in light of today's uh, uh, perspectives. But I think what you have to do is learn the history and learn the plus and minus of what the university did before and try to you know make it a better university. But I don't think learning about the past challenges make you a bad person. I think uh, in being inquisitive about it, it's probably a good thing to do, but you can't be so obsessed about the challenges of the past that you're not gonna be able to do anything to make it better or you're gonna leave the school. I think you should recognize that all schools have their challenges. Is it something that you never, like, I mean, how did you interact with it considering Duke? I guess you weren't aware of it while you were there, but just the I wasn't fact aware that it of it, something. but I, uh, I had gone on a school which was probably the high my public high school was probably 50% Jewish and maybe 50% not. So when you get to Duke, uh, you know, it was a little different. But Duke has transformed itself in dramatic ways and is an incredible university today. If you think about it, uh, all of the major universities that are private were segregated in the 1950s, 40s, 30s, and so forth. Uh, yeah. they, they didn't desegregate until 1963 at Duke. So Tulane, Rice, um, University of Virginia, uh, Emory, uh, they were all, Vanderbilt, they were all segregated. And, uh, you know, when I uh, entered uh, Duke, it had only been desegregated for only a couple of years. So it's a different world. Yeah. And like, I guess, what if you're someone who, like, how do you get over some, like, you know, those, that history, if that is something that impacts you? Some people, I think, 
are able to just focus on the work. But then I think a lot of people, and eventually, you know, maybe it boils up and comes out in a different way, but they aren't able to get over it. And like, is there something that like, you know, you'd advise someone to do if, if they feel that way? Well, if you can't get over the history of, a, of an organization uh, that you're a part of, then, you, you know, maybe you have to leave. But I think general rule of thumb, I don't think the history of universities that occurred decades before, if not a century before you were there, uh, should compel you to leave the organization if it's not currently uh, impacting the way the organization is run today. So I think it's good to know the history, just like it's good to know the history of the United States. History of the United yeah, States yeah. has slavery in its history. But that doesn't mean you should leave the United States because we had slavery at one point. Turning it back to your personal career, you know, as the son of a blue collar worker who turned into a private equity billionaire, it's safe to say you're a pretty ambitious person. Were you always, you know, a very ambitious person or was there, you know, is there an underlying behavior or characteristic? Um, I always was trying to, you know, achieve something and, and make something of myself, but I got lucky in my business career and, um, you know, I, I wouldn't have expected it. But if you take a look at a lot of the people that got lucky in the private equity world over the venture world, or the hedge fund world, many of them had similar backgrounds to mine. They didn't come from the wealthiest families. They found an area that they knew well and they built a company in that area and they made a lot of money. Most of the people that have made great fortunes in the world are people that didn't come from very wealthy families to begin with. So my situation is not that unique. Yeah, well, do you think there's a reason why a lot of, you know, these successful people in private equity or in the world come from blue collar backgrounds? Sure, um, blue collar or lower middle class. It's because if you grow up in a family where you're fabulously wealthy, you never have to struggle for money or, or worry about making your way in the world, you may not have the, the, the drive, the ambition to really uh, build something and you won't feel the pressure to do so. But if you come from a lower income background and you wanna make something of yourself, you will feel more pressure to try to uh, build something. And, and probably you're you're probably uh, going to be much more much better at it. I would suspect. Well, yeah. And do you think ambition plays a great role in you know course, people coming from this background? Yeah. If you if you're more likely to have ambition to achieve something, you come from a lower income background. Though obviously everybody from a lower income background doesn't make a fortune. But I do think that uh, it gives you a greater sense that uh, you know if you're going to get somewhere, you got to do it on your own. Well, kind of on the note of ambition, Abraham Lincoln, who you, I think you've in the past mentioned is the greatest American, right. at least in your estimation, right. um, in his speech to the young men of Lysen, um, he says that his greatest fear for the United States is actually the um, idea that there's going to be overly ambitious people that won't be able to jive with America's system, specifically saying guys like, you know, Alexander or Caesar or Napoleon, they're not going to be content with being a congressman or a governor or, or even being president, which is, you know, a pretty limited role. Um, and he specifically then goes on to say that, like, genius disdains a beaten path. It seeks to, you know, go into unexplored regions. Do you, like, think, what, what do you make of his view of ambition being actually something to be afraid of for, you know, these young people who he spoke to? Well, in his case, he came from very modest circumstances and became president of the United States. So he obviously had some ambition and uh, he didn't get there by not having ambition. He obviously wanted to run for president. And he obviously wanted to be president and he ran for president twice. So I, I'm not quite sure what his comment meant, but it can't mean that uh, you shouldn't have ambition because he had more ambition yeah. than most people in that time. He went from very, very, very modest circumstances and a loss in the Senate race uh, to be president of the United States. So, you know, there's a lot of ambition there. 
I, I think his point was more just like a guy like, you know, Napoleon who has this, I, he uses the phrase, um, you know, is of the lions, you know, um, the tribe of the eagle or the family of the lion. Right. These people who are historical figures of, you know, great conquest are not going to be content with, um, you know, the limited power that you can have in the United States. Um, um, maybe, but I, I haven't seen a lot of that. Um, you know, not everybody, not everything that Lincoln says turned out to be true or accurate. And I'm not yeah. sure that that is accurate. He had some great speeches, but there, you know, maybe if Napoleon had been in our system, maybe he wouldn't have been uh, content. But generally, in the way our countries work, if you rise to be president of the United States, generally not looking to conquer the rest of the world as well. Yeah. Well, I guess on that note, are there people who like would founders and CEOs be good politicians? Like they're probably these overly or very ambitious people who kind of are similar to, you know, like Caesar or conquerors. Do you think that they would make for good politicians? Well, which kind of people? Business people or? You know, a, a founder of a major company, you know, or a CEO. Uh, of well, uh, clearly the people who are founders of companies that are successful tend to um, be kind of gods in the companies they built. When you're in politics, you're not a god because you've got lots of people challenging you and criticizing you. So the general rule of thumb, most founders are exceptions. Of course, Mike Bloomberg was a successful mayor of New York, but generally founders of big companies don't tend to want to put themselves in a situation where people are going to regularly criticize them and they're not going to have anywhere close to power in their domain that they had as a founder of a company. So you don't see a lot of gigantically successful founders of companies getting into politics. And Sam Bankman-Fried, who you've interviewed in the past, was once seen as the new Mark Zuckerberg, and he's now had a very public fall. Do you have any uh, first impressions on, you know, what went wrong or you got a chance to interview him yourself? What was he like? And, you know, to, did to you Mark, see to, it? To Sam Bankman-Fried? Sam Bankman-Fried. Well, I did interview him, um, as you point out. And uh, at the time, he was uh, kind of a carefree person. He seemed to be, you know, he had this unique dress style, which is to wear shorts, tennis shoes, and a t-shirt and kind of un very unruly hair. But it seemed to be uh, something that made him endearing to people. Um, nobody at the time knew that he was taking some money from customer accounts and lending it to his uh, uh, Alameda uh, investment arm. So I, I think a lot of people are surprised. We'll have to do investigations to find out what really happened. But I, I think, uh, once again, people sometimes, uh, you know, can be fooled by somebody's image. And he had a non-threatening image. He didn't seem like he was trying to be a master of the universe in the sense that he was telling everybody what to do and, and seeking more and more power. He just wanted to build his own company. And do you, how do you think this impacts like the world of cryptocurrency? You know, do you think a lot of institutional investors were showing interest, you know, a year or so ago, do you think that that's going to continue um, once, you know, this poster child has been taken down? It will not be a plus. Uh, I don't see how it can be a plus. Uh, Clearly, uh, the industry has lots of people, millions of people around the world who invest in it and believe in it. They're not going to, I think, overnight uh, go away. Um, I think they, they, they'll they be more cautious. Fewer people may rush into it now. Uh, many people are, are, are going to look into what was went wrong and there'll be investigations and maybe, you know, criminal, criminal or civil complaints. I, I just don't know. But I would say uh, as a general rule of thumb, I think younger people will not be deterred and older people who didn't think it was that valuable will be uh, confirmed in their view that it was a, it was not a good thing to do. Well, kind of on the note of younger people, um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg was often like seen as an analog to Sam Bankman-Fried, and there's kind of a 
now I would argue a cliche in society that, you know, you have these 20 year old, young, very smart founders who take on these gigantic, you know, corporations. And in one of the early interviews of Mark Zuckerberg, you know, um, he was on 60 Minutes and the constant question was, should someone this young be taking on such res huge responsibility? I guess my question for you is, do you think that 20 year olds in general should be taking on, you know, massive corporations? And do you think his fall will prevent people from taking that leap or investing in people? that situation as a general rule of thumb uh great companies are not built by 70 year olds they generally yeah. tend to be built by 20 year olds so i suspect that bill gates was in his 20s steve jobs was in his 20s mark zuckerberg was in his 20s when they built those companies uh the google uh founders may have been in their early 30s or late 20s and i think jeff bezos might have been in his early 30s but generally the ambition the drive the uh um i would say uh desire to make something of yourself and build something great usually occurs when you're younger, you have more energy and so forth. So I, I, I don't think that's going to change. The great companies in the world are almost always going to be built by people who are in their 20s, if not early 30s. And do you think this is going to change investors' perspectives on investing in 20-year-olds? Because of, you know they gave a lot of responsibility to a guy who in a lot of ways seems like he was just figuring his life out. Well, the people who mistakes. invest in venture capital are by and large backing a lot of people are in their 20s and 30s. And if you don't want to back people in their 20s or 30s, you're going to miss out a lot of great venture opportunities. So, no, I don't think so. I think it, you know, if somebody else comes along as living in the Bahamas with wear shorts, tennis shoes, and just a t-shirt, I think people may be more skeptical of that type of person they would have been before. Well, kind of, you know, transitioning into the world of journalism, you've had conversations with some of the world's most fascinating people. Do you have an interview that you've conducted that is your favorite? Well, I don't like to say which of my children are my favorite, and I don't like to say which <laughs> of my interviewees are my favorite, but I think the interview I did with Jeff Bezos a few years ago in front of a live audience was, was very enjoyable, and I think he enjoyed it. Uh, the one I did with Bill Clinton and uh, George Bush together was, I think, enjoyable for them and me. Uh, Oprah Winfrey interview, I think, was enjoyable. Uh, for her and uh, uh, for, and for her and for me, um, so you know I, I generally like all the interviews I do. Sometimes I think they work better in a live audience because if yeah. I use humor, um, you can um, you, you can the audience will tend to laugh and then it it frees up the uh, interviewee to kind of feel more um, free in responding and and I think it makes for a better atmosphere. Was it something that you always had a desire to do to like be a, I guess, a reporter or, you know? No, um, I, I don't have a desire to be a reporter because I, you know, I didn't think it was a profession that probably was that lucrative for one thing. And um, so, no, I, I, I'm not, I just stumbled into this by, by becoming the president of the economic club of Washington, just supposed to bring in business people to speak. It turned out they were fairly boring. So I decided I would try to interview them and see if I could live it up and people liked it and they put it on Bloomberg. But um, and now I get asked to do a lot of interviews of people, not on television, but just for various events. And, um, you know, it's it's easy for me to do. I read the materials and I have a you know, a quick mind. I can kind of come up with questions and and can kind of uh, add some humor to it. So uh, but I'm not going to be a reporter or didn't want to be. Well, was there an interview that you felt gave you you learned the most from from you know conducting it? Well, in the interviews in my latest book, I I didn't know all those people that well, so I uh, learned a lot in those interviews um, because a lot of them investment, a lot of those investment professionals are people that I knew just maybe socially or knew a little bit, but not well. 
when I dug into their backgrounds in the interview, I got to learn a lot more and found it interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, kind of on that note, where do you see the future of journalism? Will it be like high profile people such as yourself where kind of, you know, just in general interested in other people and are curious about the world who asks, who are, you know, running these operations? I know Andreessen Horowitz um, no. is investing heavily in, you know, creating a media company, Future, and they have a couple other ventures that they're doing in terms of creating content. And, you know, as someone who's wasn't wasn't a, was a journalist you know the the business model is really tough there to monetize so it, will it be something where it is high profile people or people whose income does not come from the content itself that are the future journalists or what do you think about the industry well the world of journalism is changing because newspapers are basically folding so they're very they're going to be very few newspapers in 10 years maybe just three or four of any consequence um, the evening news shows aren't paid attention to that much anymore compared to what they were 20 or 30 years ago. But I think people are gonna get their news uh, amazingly from uh, social media sources. A lot of my children get their news from uh, LinkedIn or yeah, people get yeah. their news from Facebook. Whether that'll continue, I don't know. But I, I do think that news is gonna come to people from varied places, but not from the traditional places that I got it from. And do you think that like it's going to be high profile people who are the you know interviewers or or is it going to be oh, like professionals will probably do it, but um, but I'll give you an example. Um, today, um, if, in many towns where I visit, uh, I have a very hard time finding a place to, that can sell newspapers. Very few yeah, places yeah. You, you can't get the New York Times physically almost anywhere. You have to read it online, which has its downsides to me. So uh, I, I think at some point it probably won't be printed physically at all. Um, and probably that's going to be true of the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal. Everything will be online. So you have to be very adept at uh, knowing how to work the Internet and getting all your, your uh, paywalls paid for and so forth uh, to get the news. But we'll see. Then what would your advice be for someone who is like wanting to make a career in, in news or journalism? Do you think it's just go into the real world and then like, you know, build a profile there? Or do you think? you should continue on the route of like journalism. Find a wealthy spouse or <laughs> have a wealthy parent. Um, yeah. Because, uh, you know, journalism is not a profession that that pays that well and probably that's not going to change. Um, if, if somebody's committed to journalism, you should recognize that it's not a lucrative profession and therefore you you have to enjoy the, the, the challenge of uh, delivering the news and scooping it out and, and writing it in, in, a, in an intelligent way but you're not going to get economically uh, very rewarded for that for better. And I guess, well, I guess my question then would be, how do you like do the calculus of like the economic rewards of doing something versus the like personal fulfillment and enjoyment from uh, doing it? Obviously journalists today have personal fulfillment because they know they're not getting paid and people still going to journalism schools and people are still interested in, in journalism. But uh, I think like these people have concluded that money isn't going to buy them happiness and they don't really need that much money. And so I think, uh, you know, there'll always be some people interested in being journalists, but whether the format is the same as we have now with newspapers that are physical newspapers or evening news shows that are 30 minutes or so, I, I, I'm skeptical of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, and would it be something that you'd ever consider, like, you know, um, if you had to start out again? Well, I, I'm not going to have to start out again, I hope. But, uh, <laughs> no, I, it's just not something I'm going to do. I'm not that good at that, but uh, I enjoy doing the interviews, but I don't want to be a journalist. Yeah. Well, hey, David, thank you for your time. Those All right. Were, well, thank uh, you. I appreciate questions. it.